Side Notes Music Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Laird, reporting to you from very nice, not quite sweltering, not quite frigid Huntsville, Alabama. It's just a beautiful day over here. Pay no mind whatever direction the weather decides to take here at Side Notes. We've got your sunshine on a cloudy day. I'm pleased to announce that we have a very special guest with us on the show today. It's a lovely young lady by the name of Dawn Osborne. Don and I have been very close personal friends for several years now, and I'm thrilled that she agreed to join us today. Let me give you a little background on her. The Don Osborne Band is a band with roots in jazz, bluegrass, soul, and folk, mixed skillfully into what can only be described as true Americana. In addition to the varied feel of their original music, the Don Osborne Band also takes beloved classics and gives them a whole new flavor, uniquely their own. A combination of melodic bass lines, driving drum beats, soaring guitar riffs, and gut-wrenching vocals will ensure you come back time and time again. show i'm glad that we're getting to do this we go back a few years a couple years yes a couple just just a couple 10 or so now our careers have taken us in some different directions which can be a pretty good thing but it also means we don't get to see each other as much it's true i think it's been what a over a year at least i would think i've been looking forward to it ever since you agreed to do it so the first time i met you was at humphrey's bar and grill in Huntsville, and we hit it off, been friends ever since, and that was before I knew you could actually sing. You were pretty much dancing that night. Yeah, I'm, I'm still a big fan of dancing, but most of the time I have to dance in confined spaces on small stages. <laughs> Is it important for you to feel in your body what you're singing vocally when you're on stage playing with the guys? Absolutely. It helps me sing better. Honestly, I, I, I get into it more when I'm dancing, and if I'm not dancing, that's a sure sign that I'm not into it. So, so it's kind of like a second love for you. I mean, it's it's as much of a part of the music as what you're executing. I think it's a natural reaction. It's more like when you sneeze, you close your eyes. I mean, it was pretty impressive because, you know, you move all slinky-like and 
it's always important, I guess, when your body is taking over, kind of like it becomes an instrument in and of itself, right? I mean, you start feeling it in, in it, all of your appendages and all. It does. And it's fun to feel the way that your, um, your different body parts will pick up different rhythms in the song. Let's go back to a bit of an origin story. Where were you born? Were you always a Huntsville native? No, my father was in the military. I was made in Japan, <laughs> assembled in Orlando, Florida, Navy base that shut down now. Lived in Ohio, Dayton, Ohio for a while, and then lived in Germany from the age of five till I was almost 11. Do you speak fluent German? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I've forgotten more than I remember. And even when I did know as much as I ever knew, I was maybe on the level of like a kindergartner. I, I went to... American military schools, so we had German classes once a week. <laughs> I guess you never really got a chance to assimilate into the culture all that much. Right. We lived on base. You know, we, of course, we, we went off base often and interacted with people. And my dad was, was required by the military to learn German fluently. So I knew a decent amount, enough to hang out with German kids who didn't speak English, and we could get along. So what was it like over there? I mean, it looks very much like Huntsville, Alabama. Really? I think that's why there's so many Germans that settled here. I mean, better chocolate, obviously. Better chocolate, a lot of castles. Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. I'm trying to entice my girlfriend to go to Germany, so... At a certain point, I think the people that live there just go, oh, yeah, it's another castle. Because every other hill is a freaking castle. It's hard for somebody who's not accustomed to that to really wrap their minds around the idea of, I could get tired of this. This is just more <laughs> of the same. Just another castle. When you were growing up, was there a lot of music in the household? There was, but it is not at all what would be obvious from my singing style. My mother, I, I remember pervasively, like overwhelmingly uh, listening to classical music, you know, getting her from school and my, you know, your head's all frazzled being around so many different people just laying down on the couch and like relaxing. She always had lace curtains that were blowing in the breeze and always had classical music on. It's a good memory. Did you have any siblings or anything growing up? I had a brother who thought he was the best singer of all time. And he was, he, he was a really great singer. In his three-note range. <laughs> but he enjoyed it immensely. And my mom was is an amazing singer. So the three of us would sing all the time, regardless of how we, how good we sounded. I, I can't I can't attest to my own skill at a young age. I, I can't imagine I would have been much better. <laughs> when did you first discover that you could do it? When did you find your own voice? That's a good question. You know, I have a very clear memory of the first time I was recorded. And it was on... A dinky little tape recorder, you know, microphone setup that my friend had in her bedroom. And she recorded me singing Mariah Carey and then played it back for me. And it was the most god-awful bad sounding <laughs> thing I'd ever heard in my whole life. It's a good thing that I'm stubborn. Otherwise, that probably would have made me quit. <laughs> there had to be a point in time where singing shifted from something that you could do to something that you couldn't go without doing. I think I always felt like that. I just didn't have other people's opinions to back me up on it. Right. Uh, I ran into a friend of mine from high school. She said, oh, I knew you before you could sing. I was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? She's like, you thought you could sing? <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> confidence booster. You can always count on your friends. <laughs> Yet again, I'm just incredibly stubborn. So I, had, I always had people say, nobody wants to hear you sing. And I was I just, whatever. <laughs> and just do what I wanted anyways. I was incredibly sober. In fact, their, their saying I couldn't sing might have pushed me to sing more. Who knows? <laughs> well, I mean, when did it become like a consuming passion for you? 
I always wanted to be a singer. Really? My whole life. That's, I tried to dig up some sort of enthusiasm for something else, and I could never find any kind of passion for anything else beyond that of like, like a hobby. Sure. I love the whole weather chasing thing. Could not do that for a living. It's very much like I'm interested in it on a hobby level, and then I want to go back to what I really enjoy. I love history. It, maybe if I hadn't had music in my life, I would have been some sort of history professor. But even that, anything in comparison pales. Ooh, it doesn't bother me. I'm better off, you see. Now you've set me free into the wind. I thought I saw the end, went crying to my friends, a broken heart to mend and wallowing. But that's before I knew that there's life after love and loving you. I just stepped into the flow, now you seem so long ago. I turned around to hell, the tears were born. It don't seem right, but now it don't seem wrong. So let's talk about influences. I've had the privilege of joining you on stage on a few different occasions, right? And I know that you have a love for tort singers like Eva Cassidy and Nora Jones. We've done some of their material before. But your musical universe is so much wider than that. Who inspires you as an artist? Jeez, oh, there's so many. I would say Rufus Wainwright and um, Paul McCartney extremely prolific writer. I, you know, it's funny, like as much as I am a vocalist and I think that's what would come first to anybody's mind when they saw my body of work, I am a huge fan of lyricists yes. opposed to vocalists. I, um, I mean, of course, when I hear a really good voice, I'm like, yes, but I don't know what re what gets me first is lyrics. So it, it it's the poets that get me before the music, you know, and then a really good melody carries forth the intent and the meaning and the emotion that the 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 poet intends to put in there. So, of course, music takes me and gives me chill bumps and sweeps me away. But, yeah, it's it's lyrics. Um, Leonard Cohen. Classic stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Let's see. My mind is blanking on names right now. Uh, Did Poncho and Lefty. Oh, uh, Willie Townsend. Townsend Van Zandt. I, I'm always so familiar with uh, Willie's version of that. But, yeah. yeah, Towns Van Zandt doesn't really get a lot of the notoriety that he deserves. Yes. He he's he's an amazing amazing poet. One of my one of my songs that on our first album that people tend to gravitate toward, I think first, you know, on the most relatable level, I think, is called "Good for a Night." The first part of it is totally an homage to Towns Van Zandt's writing. He has I can't remember the name of the song, but he has a song that says, "Your eyes are diamonds and your lips are wine," and that that struck me immediately because most people do comparisons. They say your lips are taste like wine your lips are like wine you know your yeah. eyes look like this similes instead yes. of metaphors and i took i took the similes of what he wrote and and flipped it back around to the more mundane version of it but it's definitely a nod you know i said uh, my eyes don't sparkle like hers do and my lips don't taste like wine it is the more mundane version of what he wrote because what he wrote is just untouchable you can't get better than perfection you know you mentioned mccartney and yeah. I thought he was very intellectual as both a lyricist and a composer. Do, do you notice those things sort of passively making their way into the way that you compose? 
Absolutely. I don't really know many musicians that aren't influenced by the Beatles. Right. <laughs> I mean, let's just put that out there. <laughs> the, those who say otherwise are lying. They are. So. Or they are completely sheltered. Right. In every way. You can't help but have the music that you love dig its way into your your psyche and you know embed itself there so you're always going to have like echoes of things it's strange though when i haven't listened to a song for a long time it's funny how i remember it do you ever notice that i like, do sometimes your brain does things with a song and then you go and you're like huh i could i could have sworn it was this thing and I guess that's the natural continuance. Paul McCartney probably has something very similar hmm. happened to him from what he listened to from when he was growing up. So um, I You're, guess it's we're all standing on the shoulders of giants. Absolutely. Your influences are also influenced by very influential people. <laughs> yes. Do you find that there are any of them that endure the test of time, some of them that have been with you since the beginning? The Moody Blues. I had four cassette tapes when I lived in Germany. Of course, they were, all except for one, were stolen from my parents' um, collection. Mm. I mean, stolen. Mm. It was in the living room, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I just uh, sh shanghaied it, I guess. And, <laughs> um, and the one tape that was actually mine, of course, being a little girl, was the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack. Of course. Which I remember spinning in circles until I almost wanted to throw up, <laughs> singing, this, singing all the songs. And then I, from my father, and don't. Do not, I can't be held responsible. Again, I was like seven <laughs> years old. Uh, was the Reba McIntyre greatest hits. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then um, the other two were the best of Fleetwood Mac and the best of the Moody oh, Blues. Probably a lot of things off of rumors on that disc. Yeah, absolutely. But it's funny. I always like the songs. I know this isn't a popular opinion, but I'm just not a fan of Stevie Nicks. Well, you know. As a person, huge fan, but just style-wise... I know that's not like that's not what most what most female singers are supposed to say, but I kind of enjoyed them as a unit. As I a group. do too. I like them very much as a group, but her as the you know the main person. I don't know. And Lindsey Buckingham is is a phenomenal guitar player in his own right. But let's be honest, he's not Pavarotti. He's got. A good voice for what he does, mm -hmm. but their real strength came in when all four of them hit that chorus together and had to sing in four-part tight Absolutely. harmonies. I mean, that's what they were pretty much known for. I a national stage will certainly take like a loose bunch of musicians and tighten you right up. Yeah, as a group, Fleetwood Mac definitely on like a top 50 list i know that sounds like it's kind of brushing it off but no a top 50 list list is about as far as i can pare it down you know what i'm saying and I, there's just so many musicians i love so much i would be like oh but you belong on the list oh do you think that music may have been a little bit more honest back then in the sense that they don't have all the bells and whistles in the studios totally. and everything to color it absolutely it, it is the video killed the radio star it's true I mean, it, it went from being an audio medium to being a visual and audio medium. And really, I think the emphasis is more on the visual now than it is on the audio, mm. um, which seems backwards considering it's music. Sure. But I guess it's um, the way they say it is about being a performer. And since they have all the bells and whistles, you don't have to be a good singer anymore. And the outlets have changed. Or a good for player, for that matter. Just right. splice and 
you know, cut and paste. Cut and paste. And it's interesting, too, that even the outlets for those visual mediums have changed over the years. MTV used to be known for bringing video, mm -hmm. and now it's pretty much a reality TV outlet exclusively. Now a lot of that business has gone on to YouTube and Vivo and all of those kinds of places. Isn't it funny that... I'm like starting to see some sort of connection between the swell of reality TV shows versus the swell of technology that makes us not interface anymore. Mm. You know, like it's That's like, it, would we need reality TV shows if we had our own reality, but mm. our faces are stuck in our phones and I'm guilty. Like I'm totally guilty. I was sitting here last night with my boyfriend and one of my good friends and I went to innocuously look up something on IMDb that we all wanted to see. And I looked it up, found the information. And then next thing you know, I'm deep in Facebook and mm. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, my God, let me put this down take this away from me. You know, like, <laughs> do you think there's something to that, that it's synthetic interactivity? That Absolutely. And, it, and, and in certain cases, I think it's it helps people interact mm -hmm. because certain people still would go out and be able to interact. But mm -hmm. in other ways, like me, I sometimes I just tend to get lazy and mm -hmm. I'm like just feeling kind of uh, and I don't feel like going out and interacting, but I want human interaction. And so I can like passive aggressively have human interaction <laughs> by scoping out Facebook. Oh, what's going on on Twitter? You know, like, of course, there are the ones that are friends and connections that you're trying to bridge the gap. that are like maybe a couple hundred miles away. You're obviously not going to see True. them on the weekends. True. But it's the ones that are in town. You know, yeah. some, sometimes when you put out an invite or it's just like, let's go and actually do something. And I still do hang out with friends, but I think that once upon a time, it was, you had to. You had to hang out. If you wanted to see people or know about what was going on with them, you had to at least the very least call them and usually go and just find them because nobody had cell phones mm. where you could just go, where are you? On the other hand... I keep in touch with family members that I I previously didn't talk to for years and years who I've now discovered Facebook nine years after I've joined them. <laughs> so it's a double-edged sword. It you know, is. there are pros and cons it to is. it on, on both ends. I love it as a way to get music out. It's a great way to get in contact with tons and tons of fans, you know. Touch on the face become a sin You couldn't begin To see things my way You know I never met another person That's quite like you Knows what to do But goes the wrong way fans okay so you've cut a debut album it's true you've cultivated a pretty good fan base so far i'd like to think that as yeah. well <laughs> <laughs> what's your secret for that how do you cultivate followers consistency mm. shameless self-advertising mm. across a wide period of time on a very consistent basis i recently have uh given up the ghost and and 
given in and joined Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> it's a great musical tool. It is. It really is. It's. I'm still trying to figure it out in a lot of ways. I'm like an 80-year-old woman on the inside. <laughs> are, are you hip to Music Monday, Follow Friday, all of that stuff? Hashtag MMFF. Uh, we apparently need to talk and exchange <laughs> notes after this. <laughs> yeah, but it's a great tool for connectivity. It is. Maybe more so than Facebook is. I never have figured out the art of being super personable through text. Mm. I think I really make my connections with people in person. It's funny because over the past decade of playing music professionally, it's forced me to up my game socially. It really has. I thought I was doing pretty good. <laughs> and then I see how some performers are and how like effortless it appears to flow off of them. And I'm like, up in my game. That's what's happening. It is a challenge because sometimes when you send out something via text or IM or email, certain things get lost in translation sometimes. You know, you may be joking or trying to cut up and it's completely misinterpreted on the other end. Oh, yeah. I'm the queen of putting my foot in my mouth. So <laughs> I usually stick to a couple of light wink, wink, nudge, nudge every once in a while and then basically just give them the information. Just give them the opportunity to come and see us if they're available. You know, never any kind of come out or we're not your friends anymore, you know. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It's very much just, hey, if you can make it, love to see your face. Because a lot of people, it kind of will relieve them of any kind of pressure situation. Situation Absolutely. To it. It's so funny how people will come up to me and they're like, I'm so sorry. We haven't been here for the past two shows. And I'm like, dude, we, <laughs> we play so many shows. I'm just glad you're here tonight. You know, just, awesome. you know, the information is there so you can come out if you can. Who do you think your audience is? Who, who comprises your crowd? It's actually, it's a pretty wide, pretty wide demographic. I think, mm. I don't know. It's all of my friends that have children love the music. Mm. But then again, a lot of my friends like the music and pretty much everybody um, from about, you know, 10 years older than me. So the, I would say like anybody under the age of 15 is probably going to love it. And then anybody over the age of 30 is probably going to love it. But the 20s, it, you just never know. It's a crapshoot. I, I think that a lot of people in their 20s more go toward like um, the, the indie vein and uh, naturally just kind of rebel against something that um, has the earmarks of jazz or blues to mm. it because that's what their parents listen to. And sure. uh, so they're, they're trying to find their own style and what they like. And uh, I think sometimes it takes into your 30s to realize that it doesn't you know, liking one type of music doesn't have to preclude you liking another type of music. You know? Sure. I think keeps your audiences coming back. Is it the music or is it personalities or is it a combination thereof? Is it the performance? What do you think is the package that draws them to you? You know, I really don't know. <laughs> I, I know that my musicians are amazing and they're playing music with me. So I, I, that's got to say that I'm at least on their level or definitely on their level, by the way. <laughs> But I've had a lot of people recently, my boyfriend being one of them, he's, you know, he's into a lot of electronic music. Mm. And so the type of music that I play, I don't think would even necessarily be his first choice in going to see live music, right? Sure. But he comes and sees our shows and he says he loves the way we interact with each other, that he has never seen a band look like they had more fun on stage. And that might be it because we really do have so much fun together. It's 
it's ridiculous. We're always laughing on stage. What usually triggers it? I mean, is it just... We're stupid. <laughs> you say dumb things, inappropriate things. We, somebody will maybe do a wrong note, but work it into like a, a funny little film, and then somebody else will mimic it, and then we all get a chuckle. And it's, 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 it's oftentimes stuff that people don't even notice. They just notice we're laughing. Where do you find that you guys get the greatest reception? It's hard to say. It, it seems to go in waves, mm. you know. For the last little while, for the past several years, two or three years, we've been playing maybe more than that by now. Jeez. Mm. We've been playing the second Friday of every month at the Voodoo Lounge mm. um, in downtown Huntsville. And I would say for at least the past couple of years that that has been our most welcoming platform. The longer we go, it seems like more and more places just like welcome us with open arms. We get, we got a really great reception at the, the low male concerts on the dock, um, a little over a month ago when we performed there. I want to talk to you about that in a minute. Cool. Loved that. So, and it seems like if it's a family friendly place, we're going to get a huge welcome, huge, huge welcome. And then most places that we go other than that still welcome us very warmly. Um, Every once in a while you get like a strange crowd. There's one place in Huntsville that shall not be named. And uh, <laughs> if, if you go there, nobody claps. And I thought it was just us until so I start, started talking to some of our musician friends and they said, nope, they don't. The whole whole dang place will be packed out. I mean, there'll be a hundred people or more. Nobody claps. I know the place. <laughs> and they don't make a peep and they just sit there. And then when you're done, people come up and be like, oh, I just love that version of what you did. And you're like, well, could you tell your face that or maybe your hands? Come like, on. <laughs> like yeah. I wasn't sure if, you know, if you hated us. Or <laughs> yeah. I think there's a certain personality that has a complete lack of empathy, mm. maybe towards mm. what somebody's doing out there. They can't put themselves in the shoes mm-hmm. of whoever is on stage performing and singing. And so they don't know that that really is a catalyst for a performer. I get the feeling that they're just so used to fine things in life, nice things in life, being happy, having things provided for them that they don't even think twice about it. So it's more like we almost become like wallpaper. It's just another accessory in the room. Of course they're going to have good music. (laughs) Maybe it's just a matter of you become desensitized. You can. To happiness in a weird way. Does that sound strange? You can become desensitized to about anything around you. What's next for you in terms of your trajectory, your goals? What's next? On the short term, I sat down with my musicians, Newt Johnson, Andrew Sharp. Where the three of us are the primary core mm. of this group. We've been we've been going through drummers, not for any bad reasons, mm. but just because life will work as life will. One of them, Aaron Cox, got married and moved to, to South Africa. Africa. Yeah. What are you going to do about yeah. that? You know, like <laughs> not and, much. And, and God told him to do it. So, like, uncle, like you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. if God yeah. tells you to do something, then there's no yeah. fighting that. And you know what I'm saying? There's no, well, maybe, you know, just have a good life, Aaron, and blessings. We do wish him well. And no Ebola strain over there, by the way. Yeah. Well, so you worked with Jim Cavender on this last recording, right? For those of you who don't know Jim, he's a very, very multi-talented man. 
he sings. He's a great guitarist. He's a ridiculous bassist and drummer. He's one of those guys, mm-hmm. kind of like Andrew in a way. And so we obviously had a pretty good idea of how everything should sound in an arrangement. Mm-hmm. But the members of your band, like we said before, are so incredibly talented in their own rights that they probably had a pretty good instinct when it came down to what they should put in intuitively mm-hmm. into the songs. So how did that balance out in the studio? Um, it's very low-key. First of all, <laughs> there was no studio. <laughs> <laughs> These the are secrets quote, I'm giving away. Unquote, studio. <laughs> we recorded instruments all separate, and then vocals separately, and then they went back and did, the guys went back and did the um, the backing harmonies. We intentionally made this kind of a like a lo-fi, you know, very low-key, very straightforward version of what our band is. Sure. We, we wanted to present exactly what we could present on stage in real time with the four of us. Um, this is back when Aaron was still in the band, so he's on the album. And there would be times where uh, Jim would say, why don't, you, why don't you try this? You know, real time in recording. And, you know, he's got impeccable musical taste. So Absolutely. we... We always at least gave it a shot, you know. Sure. If he's got something to suggest, obviously got some merit. And it was it was always a very low key, very low stress thing. I think the instruments were recorded, with the exception of two songs, which were recorded mm-hmm. all four of us together live at Roberts Hall at UAH. With the exception of those two songs, all the instrumentation was recorded at um, Jim Cavender's house, which he's, he does have a studio, a studio of sorts, but it's in a tiny room. Yeah, a little project <laughs> studio. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then the vocals were recorded at a church um, in, in Jones Valley. Sadly enough, I cannot remember the name of that church. Great big church with the most beautiful sanctuary you've ever seen in your life. Mm-hmm. Stained glass window at the top. And as we were... You know, finishing up the last couple of songs, the sun was streaming through and it was just amazing. You know, I was talking with the guys about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, Mm -hmm. and we finally set down a date for our next release. So when is that release date? It is my birthday, March 16th. We are going to do a six track EP and it's going to be two or three of the tracks from the last album. Two of them remastered, and one of them is going to be completely re-recorded. And then we're going to have three new originals. And then hope to, by Christmas of next year, have a 12-track all-original album coming out with with, uh, the three tracks from the EP and the nine brand-new tracks. Talk about prolific. That's pretty... With Andrew Sharp, oh my gosh, it's, if anything, we have overflow of material you know I, I put forth my little bit but he is one of the most prolific people i personally know he's a machine he really is so are you going to use the same outlets again to record these next releases i think that and we're still talking still working out hammering out details you know the business part of it is always what takes the longest the actual mm. recording process is wham bam you know but has to be I think that we're going to be recording with James Parker this time. James Parker, he actually is the one who hooked us up with the sanctuary from that that church for the last album. He works at the church. I think he might be a youth pastor of some sort. Either that or majorly involved in the church. Um, But he has access to a beautiful recording board. We're, We're going to do, I think, something different for this next album. I'm looking for a lot more artistry. 
Not that there is anything lacking in the way that the guys played, but sure. we're going to have guest musicians playing with us. We're going to have, um, you know, we didn't even double any of my vocal tracks or anything of that sort. And I didn't sing harmony with myself on the last album, but there's going to be a plethora of <laughs> tricks from the bag pulled nice. out, you know? How many times do your producers lend creative input in the process? I mean, do you find that there's a lot of bouncing back and forth ideas between you and the band? Not so much. I mean, we give a description of what we're going for. Mm. And I think they, the, the producers pretty much just try to accomplish that because, you know, we have, a, I think, a pretty good idea from the get-go what it is that um, these songs need to sound like. Mm. Jim, in a couple of places, said... Uh, you know, like I, I do most of my vocal tracks in one take, but on a couple of them, I'd say, I feel like I can do that better. And mm. we'd do a second take on it. And, uh, on one of the songs, I think it was, I can't even remember which tune it was anymore. <laughs> the first time I sang a certain part, a certain way, you know? And when I, uh, when I sang it the second time, he was like, you know, I think you should go back and sing it. That other way, that sounded really good, and, you know, that goes with this whole vibe, and I know this is, like, this sounds more like you. And so he knew what we were going for in the end production of it, and he was saying, hey, I think the vocals would go better, these vocals would go better with the end production. This mark of a good producer, He's really great. Like. He's really great. I can't even remember what tune it was now, but he's just, he, he's so subtle with his suggestions, too. He never makes you feel like, you know... Oh, you did a crappy job. Do the whole thing over. You know, like... So how many takes did you guys usually end up doing before you said, that's it? I don't know how many takes the musicians did. I, I wasn't actually even there. We all came separately and did our, our pieces separately from each other. Usually, I mean, there there are a handful of songs that were new, kind of new to us but when we were recording. And... uh and those have changed a little bit as we've done them. But usually we play a song out enough times to where we kind of have the idea of how we want it to sound right from the get-go. So it is, um, it's something that's familiar to us. Usually what ends up happening is, or what ended up happening with this, this first album is, you know, we would play a song and play it and play it and play it and then get it down exactly how we wanted to do it. And we'd pretty much do it almost the same way on stage. And then... We recorded it, and now that we have a recording of it the way we wanted it to sound, now we have a little bit of freedom to play with it again. Here's a piece that I pulled from alabamamusicoffice.com. It says, alabamamusicoffice.com goes to Huntsville, Alabama to attend the first annual Startle Fest at the Flying Monkey Theater in Low Mill. Don Osborne Band. This is mainstream pop slash rock slash R&B that still manages to be unique. This is Jim Cavender talking. With Don's incredible voice leading the way, they aim for the heart, brain, and booty all at once and never miss. Don cut the early scratch vocal tracks when she had a cold, and I still hesitated on recutting her singing because it sounded so good. Now, that's got to feel good to have an endorsement like that. It feels really good, but you could not pay me enough money in the world to take those tracks. <laughs> it's so funny what other people like love, you know, hear and they, they love and, you know, they, they, um, they latch on to, you know, but I guess I'm no different than most musicians where I'm a perfectionist and I'm like, sure. no, no, that is unacceptable. <laughs> <laughs> 
I can do that better. But yeah. Jim's always been kind, very, very kind, and very supportive. So his words are are exactly how he is in real life. He's seriously one of the nicest people you ever meet. I can attest to that, by the way. He's wonderful. Back when the old Crossroads venue was open, they used to host the open mic jams, and I was terrible. He was always so warm and receiving, and he just said, you know, this is how you get good. You cut your teeth on stages like this. So he really is the epitome of building people up. He like. scared me so much back in those days. <laughs> he was so intimidating to me. He didn't do anything. There was nothing that he did that actually made me feel that way. It was my perception because I was looking at this awesome, like already at that point, even, you know, 15 years ago was already a, a, a Huntsville legend and com extremely prolific, you mm. know, had played with all of the best people in town. And, you know, he had this deep bass, like booming voice and he was so cool. Like he's very, he's got this rockability, you know, mm. like, you know, uh, you know, feel to him. And he just intimidated the crap out of me. I would, I was like quaking in my boots, you know, I, there's so many times where I wanted to go talk to him and I just wussed out. <laughs> and well, that seems funny because he's such a nice person. I have actually heard what you guys did and what you laid down. I love the music. Thank you. Uh, thank you. It's new in the sense that it's something that you're not exposed to often. Like we were talking about earlier. But it's like you're sitting down and having a conversation and a cup of coffee with an old friend. Do you find that people feel at home listening to what you've done so far? I would imagine so. I mean, it's it's not the type of music that that gets your blood boiling, certainly, mm. in, in whatever way, whether it be, you know, you know, sexual or anger or, you know, any any sort of deeply, you know, deep passion. But it is something that Everybody has felt at a time. I think that there are a lot of moments on the album of uh, like a lot of bittersweet, you know, mm. which is life. You know, there's sure. a lot of sweet mixed in a little bit of bitter mixed in, you know. I think that we did a really good job of in the writing, uh, shying away from anything that was too self-pitying because there are too many good things in life to just focus on the bad. You know, not that you should gloss over all the bad, but acknowledge it all. There's some writers out there that have a really hard time writing about good things. It's know. true. I think people write about what um, makes them feel the most. And I don't know if most people really know how to be happy, mm. you know? So when they're feeling, they're feeling angry. They're feeling sad. Or in my case, when I'm feeling happy, I don't think about sitting down and writing about it. I'm experiencing it, you know? So I have to try to, in the moment, like take a snapshot of my feelings of how I, and, and somehow go back to that later and write about it. But I'm rarely in the moment of being happy when I'm writing about it. Well, tell us about the messaging behind some of the songs. I mean, are there any particular ones that have any deep personal introspective meaning for you? Absolutely. There's a song on the album called Rope to Hang. And I, uh, I oftentimes live dedicate that song to anybody who's ever been in a relationship they could not wait to get out of. Mm. I think that speaks for itself. <laughs> <laughs> rope to hang. It's all about, uh, we're all given some rope in life, right? And now we can either use that rope to climb or we can use that rope to hang ourselves. And that's what rope to hang is about. I'm very thankful that I am not in such a relationship right now, honey. Just so you know. I currently have an amazing boyfriend. P.S. 
So this is not about him. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good to you. So if you had something to say thematically, an overarching theme, what would that be? For this album, uh, it centers around um, dreams and love, you know. Mm. And for the next album, we're very consciously staying away from those topics for writing. So we, we want to, we want to explore so many different aspects of life. Like life isn't just made up of dreams and love as much as I think about them a lot. That's true. (laughs) Um, so on the next album, there's a song, Liza May, which, uh, is kind of, uh, it's, it's a message to my mom and Andrew's mom. Uh, Andrew and I sat down and talked about a concept for a song. We wanted to, you know, do something for our mothers because, they had, uh, they had both been through, you know, 20 years apart, had both been through a situation in their life where they had been maybe not treated as well as they ought to have been in love. Mm. And so Liza May came out, came out of this song. Uh, his mother's name is Glennis May. My mother's name is Elizabeth Jane. So Liza May. Andrew wrote it, but it was, um, it was, it was, he wrote it directly after the conversation we had about doing something for our mothers. The hook line is, you ain't never going to find a finer gem than Liza May. So the first verse is about his mother and some um, imagery that calls from her childhood, right, and her life. And then um, the second verse is about my mother um, and some things in her life. And, uh, you know, the the line, in, there's a line in the chorus that says, Liza May, eyes of gray. And it's so funny. Both of our mothers have gray eyes and you don't, you don't see that all that often, but it just fits so well. It totally did. So we have a song for our our moms. I wrote a song recently on the ukulele that is all about childhood and like beautiful, like, like falling in love with your best friend in a very innocent way, Mm -hmm. you know, as a child, you know, and then growing up with them. Uh, So there's that song. And uh, there's another song about, music and how it carries you away uh it we 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 put the imagery around a dancer you know and about how it just makes everything disappear for her um it's called on and on yeah it's it we're just doing we're trying to do all these different themes that we think about things that are important to us in life that aren't set up, centered around like lost love and you know <laughs> i feel like we 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 for the time being, have very much tapped that particular keg. Sure. <laughs> I could drink a baby Try to forget The good and the bad and then walk around sad But instead I'll go on Much like before There's no time for tears Or for pacing the floors With so much demanding of me And my time is leaving a question of why We ended up here in the here again Use a rope and I lie. At least my baby is better than it seems. We still have some pride and it lies are good And I'll take what is good whenever I can. Tuck it away with the shining things stay. Drama has ended and tragedy sticks. No fades with the passing of time. 
tell us a little bit about your bandmates. How did you wind up with your current lineup? I have been playing with Andrew almost from the beginning. Um, I originally started playing um, in a, a duo with a guitar player, and eight months into me and the guitar player playing together, Andrew Sharp, uh, I, I, I went to one of his gigs back when Philby's was open, and uh, you know I used to go see uh, Toy Shop play all the time. I just loved them. I loved to dance to them. I was obsessed with their playing because they're both Anthony Sharp and Andrew Sharp are just seriously, seriously talented. And you, you can't, you can't beat familial harmonies. You know what I'm saying? So no, you can't. <laughs> no, you can't. Yeah, they sing like their brothers or something. You know, uh, you know they're doing it whatever. All their lives. Yeah. <laughs> Making it hard for the rest of us. Uh, but I went to go see them play, and they were uh, Andrew was setting up, and uh, apparently he had seen um, the guitar player and I playing together at an open mic, and uh, had really. I guess had seen some potential in what we were doing. So he, he came up to me when I saw him at Philby's and he's like, Oh, you know, I saw you playing with a guitar player. I really liked what you're doing. Was wondering if maybe you could use a bass player. And I immediately just put on my cool face and was like, you know, that'd be cool. We should get together and see if it works <laughs> out and da, 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 da. And shook hands with him walked outside and literally just lost my, like, I was just like jumping up and down, like, you know, doing toe touches. Like I was so over the moon that Andrew Sharp wanted to play music with me, you know? And, uh, it's been, it's been quite a ride ever since. He's seriously one of the nicest, most talented people you'll ever work with. So it's been, uh, I can't remember if it's been eight or nine years. I think it's been nine years this month that we've been together. What? He's one of the most quirky, lovable guys. He yeah. is. Oh man, oh man, he's so funny. He'll he he's one of those people. He can say the most inappropriate things <laughs> that if for anybody else you would you would kind of frown and go, "Well, that was uncalled for." But for him, the way he says it, and 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 just knowing him and knowing how like absolutely nice and how harmlessly he means this stuff. Absolutely. You just crack up and it has become the funniest thing. If I was to say it, Oh, I, I would have hate mail. Okay. But Andrew says it and he's adorable. I, I don't know if it's because he's British or if he's just that lovable naturally, but he's British Canadian. I mean, how can you fault that? When did everything start clicking for you guys? You know, um, really when Newt joined the band hmm. and Newt joined, I guess, Two and a half, three years ago mm. now. Wow. It doesn't seem that long. Uh, flies. It really does. It really does. Um, Newt is an amazing player and nobody will, will, will argue with that. But, um, on top of that personality wise, we just all click so well. And we all have those moments, those same chill bump moments, like they come at the same time, you know, like we all feel the same thing in music. When Newt joined the band, we, we had always had guitar players. Our instrumentation right now is, um, is, uh, keys and Newt plays organ as well. So he has a key, like organ and keys. Um, and then drums and bass and three part harmony. When Newt had joined the band, we had, uh, two part harmony, guitar, bass, and drums, which is fine, but I always felt like something was missing and I, I couldn't place my finger on it and we'd had several different guitar players and it didn't really change from player to player, even if the players were really great. And I don't know if it was like 
a magical, like, can't place your finger, finger on it quality in his personality or his playing or the instrument that he is playing or a combination of all three. But, um, the first gig that Newt played with us, I was like, this is what we've been missing. Oh my gosh. And, you know, really, um, it, it, we had had an amazing guitar player playing with us who had had some, um, some family problems and some mm. personal problems and he had to step away. Um, Brian Hudson, really great guitar player, gem of a guy, really great person. Um, and he had to, he had to step away and focus on his personal life. Mm. And we were, we had a whole bunch of gig, gigs on the books that we didn't have. Mm a lead instrument for. And we were just like, Oh, what are we going to do? And Newt plays bass in toy shop. And, uh, you know, Andrew's other band and he loves Andrew dearly. So when Andrew asked him if he would come fill in with a handful of gigs for us until we could find a new guitar player, you know, Newt said, yeah, of course, you know, but uh, we didn't think anything of it. We thought it was just a band aid, a temporary Mm -hmm. fix, you know? And, it was just golden. It was the magic combination. It really was. I, I always said that Andrew Sharp was my musical soulmate. I, I would say Newt Johnson and Andrew Sharp are my musical soulmates, you know? When all is said and done, what would you like to accomplish in your music career? I would like to be able to bring up a whole network of people, ultimately. Mm-hmm. All it takes is one person getting their foot in a door. And then all of a sudden you have this whole flood of opportunity that comes. If the person who gets their foot in the door is like willing to point some of that opportunity in other people's direction. You were talking about the different cities that, you know, like everybody's so cutthroat and what have you. And I think comedians have figured it out more than musicians have Mm. that you come up and you do better when you come up in a group. Because if you notice, there's like whole like like whole groups of friends that are comedians that have come up and made all these different movies, and they're all in each other's movies, and they're all amazing. They're all well known now. Well, I have a whole group of friends that are musicians that are amazing, and hey, like we just need to if, if I can get my foot in the door, if they somebody one of them can get their foot in the door, we all can come, you know, gang rush this door, and then the world is not going to know what hit them. You know, there's. No. So much talent around here that is completely untapped. It's ridiculous. And the strength in numbers, isn't it? Totally. And if we're if we're all making albums and we're all playing on each other albums, then it <laughs> you know it's it's kind of like when you when you're doing a an, an office lottery pool or something. You know? yeah. It's like yeah. if one of us wins, we all win. <laughs> <laughs> well, so if you could bring this anywhere in the world, where would it be? Would it be Austin, South by Southwest? Well, I, I think. If it had been, you know, a handful of years ago, I would have said South by Southwest, but it, I think it's become uh, a festival. I mean, I would play it. Don't get me wrong. Mm. <laughs> I'm not turning my nose about it, but that's not my, my Mecca. That's not right. my end all be all. Uh, once upon a time, I really wanted to move to Austin. It, you know, it's the music Mecca of the world right now. There Absolutely. are more musicians playing there on any given night than any other place in the world. So it, it's something I really wanted to do. I wanted to move there. I wanted to make it a big part of my life, but from what I can tell, a lot of other people have discovered how amazing Austin is. <laughs> and it's the same things happening to Austin that happened to Aspen, where it used mm-hmm. to have this like beautiful, quaint, artistic quality. And then all these people with money were like, well, I want a piece of that. And they jumped in and it changed. Oh. And I feel like Austin, in a lot of ways, is changing. 
I still feel like Austin City Limits has held true to its original intent. Um, they still play a lot of, like you said, amazing and not always mainstream musicians. Um, they have a lot of not mainstream musicians there, that is. But as a whole, the city, it's not, I think, my ideal spot anymore. Realistically, who knows where I'll end up. But one of the up-and-coming cities, I feel like, and, and I seriously mean this not just because I'm in the South, Chattanooga. Chattanooga is where it's at. Mark my words. It's a hotbed of entertainment possibilities. They have so much going on there that people don't know about. I mean, the, all really their don't. all their clubs are amazing. They have really great festivals. They have um, like citywide Ethernet. You know what I'm saying? So it's something like that. I know it seems small, but like you know, the citywide Ethernet brings in all the young business professionals and like young educated people. You know, they want art. They want culture. They, they, they want things to be able to do. So that's drawing in just scads and scads of amazing restaurants and bars and venues and different little street festivals and things like that. I mean, Chattanooga is amazing. They have completely remade their image. So I'm hoping Huntsville is going in that same direction, actually. How can people find out more about you guys? You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash the Don Osborne Band, twitter.com backslash Don Osborne Band. We're on Reverb Nation with a couple of our songs you can stream for free at www.reverbnation.com backslash the Don Osborne Band. And if you feel like getting in touch with us um, for any sort of booking or just want to shout at us and join a mailing list, you can email us at thedonosbornband at gmail.com. Don, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Don Osborne, everyone. Check her out and go out and see her live. You will not be disappointed. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you like the show, comment, rate, subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also reach us on the web at sidenotes.podbean.com or at my personal webpage at www.jonathanlaird.net. To the whole world about us, because like Veruca Salt, we want the world. We want the whole world. And I want it now. I want it now to hear from these amazing people each week. And if you're an artist or work in the industry and you want to get aired on the podcast, hit me up at Jonathan at JonathanLaird.net. Just send me a message and we'll keep you in mind. And so I bid you adieu. Join us next time for more harrowing episodes on the Side Notes Music Podcast. I'm Jonathan Laird and we'll see you next time. Until then, play it loud, everybody. But you know it's only good for a night Oh, you know it's only good for a night A man, a man, he has his needs There's only one that I can fulfill